Hi, thanks for joining me. Um, today I am getting started with uh, Section 2, Chapter 4, The Analysis of Behavior in B.F. Skinner's book, Science and Human Behavior. And one of the things I like to do when I get started is to go over some of the terms that he uses or references he makes to different people, um, just to uh, give you a little bit of, of a heads up um, about the terms. I am only touching on them uh, in the most briefest and superficial of ways. Um, but I do think it's interesting, especially when he references different um, historical figures, that it is a reminder to us of uh, the, the saying, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants and that all of our, our science and thought and the way that we, um, our philosophy and logic has a history. And um, he does make references to folks in, in his work. So he, he uses the term etymology, which refers to the origin of words. He mentions Wordsworth and Coleridge, and I am assuming he's referring to William Wordsworth and Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Both of them were um, English poets born in the 1770s, both dying in the mid-1800s. And um, Wordsworth, towards the end of his life, was for a number of years the poet laureate in the UK. And both of them were um, credited with founding what was called the Romantic Age or the movement in England. And uh, Coldridge is also noted for his influence on different uh, American poets and transcendentalists, um, such as Emerson. And Wordsworth and Coldridge, interestingly, um, uh, had a very uh, long-lasting and seemingly kind of deep friendship um, throughout their life. Uh, he mentions René Descartes, who was a French philosopher and mathematician, and he was born in 1596, and he died in 1650. You might be most familiar with um, Descartes from uh, the, the saying, I think, therefore I am. And um, Descartes' philosophy, uh, philosophies are, are interesting to those of us who work with animals because they did have a profound impact on the way we think about animals. And uh, basically, he, he would talk, uh, his, his, his idea was that animals had no soul. Um, so because they had no soul, they couldn't suffer in the same way that humans do. And that the responses that we were seeing in animals due to, um, the infliction of pain, um, were just simply, uh, mechanical responses. Um, so just it, again, when I talk about just sort of touching on, um, these folks, the, any one of them is worthy of digging deeper into, uh, what they, their contributions to Western thinking. And, um, and Descartes is certainly, is certainly among those. Um, he mentions H.G. Wells, who uh, lived 1866 through 1946. He was an English writer. We, we know of him 
um, from his works, The Time Machine, The Island of Dr. Moreau, um, but he was also uh, a political thinker, and many of his writings were were based, come from his thoughts on um, equality and human rights. He mentions George Bernard Shaw, who was an Irish playwright, and in 1933, he wrote the the book, a series of, of short stories or parables um, called The Adventures of the Black Girl in Her Search for God. And um, it, it's an, an interesting um, reference. And again, I recommend that folks, if you're interested, that you do a little bit more um, research into just what it was um, that he was writing about in that book. He mentions Count Rumford, who was born in 1753, died in 1814, and Rumford was known for uh, his work on thermodynamics. He also mentions the term stereotypical responses. And I believe when he uses the term that what he is referring to are those unlearned behavioral reactions to an environmental stimulus that are similar in a, in a particular species, as opposed to the way that we might also use the term um, to refer to those uh, behaviors, uh, compulsive behaviors that um, are also repetitive, but are often uh, harmful. Okay, well, I hope that that's helpful for you, and I hope you enjoy this next chapter in um, Science and Human Behavior, The Analysis of Behavior. Chapter four, Reflexes and Conditioned Reflexes. Man, a Machine. Behavior is a primary characteristic of living things. We almost identify it with life itself. Anything which moves is likely to be called alive, especially when the movement has direction or acts to alter the environment. Movement adds verisimilitude to any model of an organism. The puppet comes to life when it moves, and idols which move or breathe smoke are especially awe-inspiring. Robots and other mechanical creatures entertain us just because they move. And there is significance in the etymology of the animated cartoon. Machines seem alive simply because they are in motion. The fascination of the steam shovel is legendary. Less familiar machines may actually be frightening. We may feel that it is only primitive people who mistake them for living creatures today, but at one time they were unfamiliar to everyone. When Wordsworth and Coleridge once passed a steam engine, Wordsworth observed that it was scarcely possible to divest oneself of the impression that it had life and volition. Yes, said Coleridge, it is a giant with one idea. A mechanical toy which imitated human behavior led to the theory of what we now call reflex action. In the first part of the 17th century, certain moving figures were commonly installed in private and public gardens as sources of amusement. They were operated hydraulically. A young lady walking through a garden might step upon a small concealed platform. This would open a valve, water would flow into a piston, and a threatening figure would swing out from the bushes to frighten her. Rene Descartes knew how these figures worked, and he also knew how much they seemed like living creatures. 
he considered the possibility that the hydraulic system, which explained the one, might also explain the other. A muscle swells when it moves a limb. Perhaps it is being inflated by a fluid coming along the nerves from the brain. The nerves which stretch from the surface of the body into the brain may be the strings which open the valves. Descartes did not assert that the human organism always operates in this way. He favored the explanation in the case of animals, but he reserved a sphere of action for the rational soul, perhaps under religious pressure. It was not long before the additional step was taken, however, which produced the full-fledged doctrine of man a machine. The doctrine did not owe its possibility its, I'm sorry, its popularity to its plausibility. There was no reliable for support for Descartes' theory, but rather to its shocking metaphysical and theoretical implications. Since that time, two things have happened. Machines have become more lifelike, and living organisms have been found to be more like machines. Contemporary machines are not only more complex, they are deliberately designed to operate in ways which resemble human behavior. Almost human contrivances are a common part of our daily experience. Doors see us coming and open to receive us. Elevators remember our commands and stop at the correct floor. Mechanical hands lift imperfect items off a conveyor belt. Others write messages of fair legibility. Mechanical or electrical calculators solve equations too difficult or too time-consuming for human mathematicians. Man has, in short, created the machine in his own image, and as a result, the living organism has lost some of its uniqueness. We are much less awed by machines than our ancestors were and less likely to endow the giant with even one idea. At the same time, we have discovered more about how the living organism works and are better able to see its machine-like properties. Reflex action. Descartes had taken an important step in suggesting that some of the spontaneity of living creatures was only apparent and that behavior could sometimes be traced to action from without. The first clear-cut evidence that he had correctly surmised the possibility of external control came two centuries later in the discovery that the tail of a salamander would move when part of it was touched or pierced, even though the tail had been severed from the body. Facts of this sort are now familiar, and we have long since adapted our beliefs to take them into account. At the time, the discovery was made. However, it created great excitement. It was felt to be a serious threat to prevailing theories of the inner agents responsible for behavior. If the movement of the amputated tail could be controlled by external forces, was its behavior when attached to the salamander of a different nature? If not, what about the inner causes which had hereto been used to account for it? It was seriously suggested as an answer that the will must be coexist must be coexistent with the body and that some part of it must invest any amputated part. But the fact remained that an external event had been identified which could be substituted, as in Descartes' daring hypothesis, for the inner explanation. The external agent came to be called a stimulus. The behavior controlled by it came to be called a response. Together they comprised what was called a reflex on the theory that the disturbance caused by the stimulus passed to the central nervous system and was reflected 
back to the muscles. It was soon found that similar external causes could be demonstrated in the behavior of large portions of the organism, for example, in the body of a frog, cat, or dog, in which the spinal cord had been severed at the neck. Reflexes, including parts of the brain, were soon added, and it is now common knowledge that in the intact organism, many kinds of stimulation lead to an almost inevitable reactions of the same reflex nature. Many characteristics of the relation have been studied quantitatively. The time which elapses between stimulus and response, the latency, has been measured precisely. The magnitude of the response has been studied as a function of the intensity of the stimulus. Other conditions of the organism have been found to be important in in completing the account. For example, a reflex may be fatigued by repeated rapid elicitation. The reflex was at first closely identified with hypothetical neural events in the so-called reflex arc. A surgical division of the organism was a necessary entering wedge, for it provided a simple and dramatic method of analyzing behavior. But surgical analysis became unnecessary as soon as the principle of the stimulus was understood and as soon as techniques were discovered for handling complex arrangements of variables in other ways. By eliminating some conditions, holding others constant, and varying others in an orderly manner, basic lawful relations could be established without dissection and could be expressed without neurological theories. The extensions of the principle of the reflex to include behavior involving more and more of the organism was made only in the face of vigorous opposition. The reflex nature of the spinal animal was challenged by proponents of a spinal will. The evidence they offered in support of a, res- of a residual inner cause consisted of behavior which apparently could not be explained totally in terms of stimuli. When higher parts of the nervous system were added, and when the principle was eventually extended to the intact organism, the same pattern of resistance was followed. But arguments for spontaneity and for the explanatory entities which spontaneity seem to demand are of such form that they must retreat before the accumulating facts. Spontaneity is negative evidence. It points to the weakness of a current scientific explanation, but does not in itself prove an alternative version. By its very nature, spontaneity must yield ground as a scientific analysis is able to advance. As more and more of the behavior of the organism has come to be explained in terms of stimuli, the territory held by inner explanation has been reduced. The will has retreated up the spinal cord through the lower and then the higher parts of the brain, and finally, with the conditioned reflex, has escaped through the front of the head. At each stage, some part of the control of the organism has passed from hypothetical inner entity to the external environment. The range of reflex action. A certain part of behavior, then, is elicited by stimuli, and our prediction of that behavior is especially precise. When we flash a light in the eye of a normal subject, the pupil contracts. 
When he sips lemon juice, saliva is secreted. When we raise the temperature of the room to a certain point, the small blood vessels in the skin enlarge, blood is brought nearer to the skin, and he turns red. We use these relations for many practical purposes. When it is necessary to induce vomiting, we employ a suitable stimulus, an irritating fluid or a finger in the throat. The actress who must cry real tears resorts, resorts to onion juice on her handkerchief. As these examples suggest, many reflex responses are executed by the smooth muscles, for example, the muscles in the walls of the blood vessels, and the glands. These structures are particularly concerned with the internal economy of the organism. They are most likely to be of interest in a science of behavior in the emotional reflexes to be discussed in Chapter 10. Other reflexes use the striped muscles, which move the skeletal frame of the organism. The knee-jerk and other reflexes, which the physician uses for diagnostic purposes, are examples. We maintain our posture, either when standing still or moving about, with the aid of a complex network of such reflexes. In spite of the importance suggested by these examples, it is still true that if we were to assemble all the behavior which falls into the pattern of the simple reflex, we should have only a very small fraction of the total behavior of the organism. This is not what early investigators in the field expected. We now see that the principle of the reflex was overworked. The exhilarating discovery of the stimulus led to exaggerated claims. It is neither plausible nor expedient to conceive of the organism as a complicated jack-in-the-box with a long list of tricks, each of which may be evoked by pressing the proper button. The greater part of the behavior of the intact organism is not under this primitive sort of stimulus control. The environment affects the organism in many ways which are not conveniently classed as stimuli. And even in the field of stimulation, only a small part of the forces acting upon the organism elicit responses in the invariable manner of reflex action. To ignore the principles of the reflex entirely, however, would be equally unwarranted. Conditioned Reflexes the reflex became a more important instrument of analysis when it was shown that novel relations between stimuli and responses could be established during the lifetime of the individual by a process first studied by the Russian physiologist I.P. Pavlov. H.G. Wells once compared Pavlov with another of his distinguished contemporaries, George Bernard Shaw. He considered the relative importance to society of the quiet laboratory worker and the skillful propagandist and expressed his opinion by describing a hypothetical situation. If these two men were drowning and only one life preserver were available, he would throw it to Pavlov. Evidently, Shaw was not pleased, and after what appeared to have been a hasty glance at Pavlov's work, retaliated. His book, The Adventures of the Black Girl in Her Search for God, describes a girl's experiences in a jungle of ideas. The jungle is inhabited by many prophets, some of them ancient and some as modern as an elderly myop, who bears a close resemblance to Pavlov. 
the black girl encounters Pavlov just after she has been frightened by a fearful roar from the prophet Micah. She pulls herself up in her flight and exclaims, What am I running away from? I'm not afraid of that dear, noisy old man. Your fears and hopes are only fancies, says a voice close to her, proceeding from a very short-sighted elderly man in spectacles who was sitting on a gnarled log. In running away, you are acting on a conditioned reflex. It is quite simple. Having lived among lions, you have from your childhood associated the sound of a roar with deadly danger. Hence, your precipitate flight when that superstitious old jackass brayed at you. This remarkable discovery cost me 25 years of devoted research, during which I cut out the brains of innumerable dogs and observed their spittle by making holes in their cheeks for them to salivate through instead of through their tongues. The whole scientific world is prostrate at my feet in admiration of this colossal achievement and gratitude for the light it has shed on the great problems of human conduct. Why didn't you ask me, said the black girl. I could have told you in 25 seconds without hurting those poor dogs. Oh, your ignorance and presumption are unspeakable, said the old myop. The fact was known, of course, to every child, but it had never been proved experimentally in the laboratory, and therefore it was not scientifically known at all. It reached me as an unskilled conjecture. I handed it on as science. Have you ever performed an experiment, may I ask? Oh, several, said the black girl. I will perform one now. Do you know what you are sitting on? I am sitting on a log, gray with age and covered with uncomfortable rugged bark, said the myop. You are mistaken, said the black girl. You are sitting on a sleeping crocodile. With a yell which Micah himself might have envied, the myop rose and fled frantically to a neighboring tree, up which he climbed cat-like with an agility which in so elderly a gentleman was quite superhuman. Come down, said the black girl. You ought to know that crocodiles are only to be found near rivers. I was only trying an experiment. Come down. But the elderly myop is unable to come down and begs the girl to perform another experiment. I will, said the black girl. There is a tree snake smelling at the back of your neck. The myop was on the ground in a jiffy. It is clear that Shaw has caught the spirit of a science of behavior. The black girl is undeniably a good behavioral engineer. In two very neat examples of stimulus control, she induces clear-cut responses in the elderly myop. His behavior does not, as we shall see, exemplify the simple reflex, conditioned or otherwise. But if the author is fully aware of the potentialities of the practical control of behavior, he is not so strong on theory, for the passage exemplifies a common misunderstanding regarding the, regarding the achievement of science. The facts of science are seldom, are seldom entirely unknown to every child. A child who can catch a ball knows a great deal about traje trajectories. It may take science a long time to calculate the position of a ball at any given moment, any more exactly than the child must calculate it in order to catch it. When Count Rumford, while boring cannon in the military arsenal in Munich, demonstrated that he could produce any desired amount of heat without combustion, he changed the course of scientific thinking about the causes of heat. 
but he had discovered nothing which was not already known to the savage who kindles a fire with a spinning stick or the man who warms his hands on a frosty morning by rubbing them together vigorously. The difference between an unskilled conjecture and a scientific fact is not simply a difference in evidence. It had long been known that a child might cry before it was hurt or that a fox might salivate upon seeing a bunch of grapes. What Pavlov added can be understood most clearly by considering his history. Originally, he was interested in the process of digestion, and he studied the conditions under which digestive juices were secreted. Various chemical substances in the mouth or in the stomach resulted in the reflex action of the digestive glands. Pavlov's work was sufficiently outstanding to receive the Nobel Prize, but it was by no means complete. He was handicapped by a certain unexplained secretion. Although food in the mouth might elicit a flow of saliva, saliva often flowed abundantly when the mouth was empty. We should not be surprised to learn that this was called psychic secretion. It was explained in terms which any child could understand. Perhaps the dog was thinking about food. Perhaps the sight of the experimenter preparing for the next experiment reminded the dog of the food it had received in earlier experiments. But these explanations did nothing to bring the unpredictable salivation within the compass of a rigorous account of digestion. Pavlov's first step was to control conditions so that psychic secretion largely disappeared. He designed a room in which contact between dog and experimenter was reduced to a minimum. The room was made as free as possible from incidental stimuli. The dog could not hear the sound of footsteps in neighboring rooms or smell accidental odors in the ventilating system. Pavlov then built up a psychic secretion step by step. In place of the complicated stimulus of an experimenter preparing a syringe or filling a dish with food, he introduced controllable stimuli which, which could be easily described in physical terms. In place of the accidental occasions upon which stimulation might proceed or accompany food, Pavlov arranged precise schedules in which controllable stimuli and food were presented in certain orders. Without influencing the dog in any other way, he could sound a tone and insert food into the dog's mouth. In this way, he was able to show that the tone acquired its ability to elicit secretion, and he was also able to follow the process through which this came about. Once in possession of these facts, he could then give a satisfactory account of all secretion. He had replaced the psyche of psychic secretion with certain objective facts in the recent history of the organism. The process of conditioning, as Pavlov reported in his book, Condition Reflexes, is a process of stimulus substitution. A previously neutral stimulus acquires the power to elicit a response which was originally elicited by another stimulus. The change occurs when the neutral stimulus is followed or reinforced by the effective stimulus. Pavlov studied the effect of the interval of time elapsing between stimulus and reinforcement. 
he investigated the extent to which various properties of stimuli could acquire control. He also studied the converse process in which the conditioned stimulus loses its power to evoke the response when it is no longer reinforced, a process which he called extinction. The quantitative properties which he discovered are by no means known to every child, and they are important. The most efficient use of conditioned reflexes in the practical control of behavior often requires quantitative information. A satisfactory theory makes the same demands. In dispossessing explanatory fictions, for example, we cannot be sure that an event of the sort implied by psychic secretion is not occasionally responsible until we can predict the exact amount of secretion at any given time. Only a quantitative description will make sure that there is no additional mental process in which the dog associates the sound of the tone with the idea of food, or in which it salivates because it expects food to appear. Pavlov could dispense with concepts of this sort only when he could give a complete quantitative account of salivation in terms of the stimulus, the response, and the history of conditioning. Pavlov, as a physiologist, was interested in how the stimulus was converted into neural processes and in how other processes carried the effect through the nervous system to the muscles and glands. The subtitle of his book is An Investigation of the Physiological Activity of the Cerebral Cortex. The physiological activity was inferential. We may suppose, however, that comparable processes will eventually be described in terms appropriate to neural events. Such a description will fill in the temporal and spatial gaps between an earlier history of conditioning and its current result. The additional account will be important in the integration of scientific knowledge, but will not make the relation between stimulus and response any more lawful or any more useful in prediction and control. Pavlov's achievement was the discovery, not of neural process, processes, but of important quantitative relations which permit us, regardless of neurological hypotheses, to give a direct account of behavior in the field of the conditioned reflex. The survival value of reflexes. Reflexes are intimately concerned with the well-being of the organism. The process of digestion could not go on if certain secretions did not begin to flow when certain types of food entered the stomach. Reflex behavior which involves the external environment is important in the same way. If a dog's foot is injured when it steps on a sharp object, it is important that the leg should be flexed rapidly so that the foot is withdrawn. The so-called flexion reflex brings this about. Similarly, it is important that dust blown into the eye should be washed out by a profuse secretion of tears, that an object suddenly moved towards the eye should be warded off by blinking, and so on. Such biological advantages explain reflexes in an evolutionary sense. Individuals who are most likely to behave in these ways are presumably most likely to survive and to pass on the adaptive characteristic to their offspring. 
the process of conditioning also has survival value. Since the environment changes from generation to generation, particularly the external rather than the internal environment, appropriate reflex responses cannot always develop as inherited mechanisms. Thus, an organism may be prepared to secrete saliva when certain chemical substances stimulate its mouth, but it cannot gain the added advantage of salivating before food is actually tasted unless the physical appearance of foodstuffs remains the same from environment to environment and from time to time. Since nature cannot foresee, so to speak, that an object with a particular appearance will be edible, the evolutionary process can only provide a mechanism by which the individual will acquire responses to particular features of a given environment after they have been encountered. Where inherited behavior leaves off, the inherited modifiability of the process of conditioning takes over. It does not follow that every conditioned reflex has survival value. The mechanism may go wrong. Certain pairs of stimuli, such as the appearance and taste of food, may occur together in a consistent way, which is important to the organism throughout its life. But we have no guarantee that conditioning will not occur when the pairing of stimuli is temporary or accidental. Many superstitions exemplify conditioned responses arising from accidental contingencies. The behavior is due to an actual pairing of stimuli, but the resulting condition reflex is not useful. We call some such reflexes irrational. A child who has been attacked by a dog may fear all dogs. The visual stimulus supplied by a dog has been paired with the terrifying stimulation of physical attack. But the pairing is not inevitable for all dogs. When the response is later elicited at the sight of a harmless dog, it serves no useful function. It is nevertheless due to a process which does prove valuable elsewhere. We all suffer from this miscarriage of the evolutionary process when we make stereotyped responses. Strong behavior appropriate to the sight of someone we dislike violently may be evoked by other people with the same features, wearing the same types of clothes, and so on. Minor effects of the same sort are less troublesome. A nostalgic reaction to a tune which was popular during an old love affair is a conditioned response arising from a non-functional pairing of stimuli, but we do not call it superstitious or irrational. The range of conditioned reflexes. Although the process of conditioning greatly extends the scope of the eliciting stimulus, it does not bring all the behavior of the organism within such stimulus control. According to the formula of stimulus substitution, we must elicit a response before we can condition it. All conditioned reflexes are, therefore, based upon unconditioned reflexes. But we have seen that reflex responses are only a small part of the total behavior of the organism. Conditioning adds new controlling stimuli, but not new responses. In using the principle, therefore, we are not substituting to a conditioned reflex theory of all behavior. A fair measure of the range of the conditioned reflex is its use in the practical control of behavior. Reflexes which are concerned with the internal economy of the organism are seldom of practical importance to other people, but an occasion may arise when we are interested in making someone blush or laugh or cry, and we then resort to conditioned or unconditioned stimuli. 
It is frequently the business of literature to generate behavior in this way. The tearjerker has a literal meaning. More subtle effects are similar. It is important in understanding the effect of a poem to note that conditioned responses may be elicited by such verbal stimuli as death, love, sorrow, and so on, quite apart from the effect of the prose meaning of the poem. The emotional effects of music and painting are largely conditioned. We also use this process to arrange for the control of behavior at a later date. In patriotic and religious education, for example, emotional responses to flags, insignia, symbols, and rituals are conditioned so that these stimuli will be effective upon future occasions. A commonly proposed cure for excessive drinking or smoking consists of adding substance, substances to liquor or tobacco which generate nausea, headaches, and so on. When liquor or tobacco are later seen or tasted, similar responses are evoked as the result of conditioning. They may compete with the behavior of drinking or smoking as by taking all the fun out of it. Conditioning of this sort is, treated a, is treating a symptom rather than a cause, but it may make it easier for the patient to stop drinking or smoking for other reasons. Training a soldier consists in part of conditioning emotional responses. If pictures of the enemy, the enemy's flag, and so on are paired with stories or pictures of atrocities, a suitable aggressive reaction will probably occur at the sight of the enemy. Favorable reactions are generated in somewhat the same way. Responses to delectable foods are easily transferred to other objects. Just as we dislike the liquor or tobacco which makes us ill, so we like stimuli which accompany dis delicious food. The successful salesman is likely to buy his customer a drink or take him out to dinner. The salesman is not interested in gastric reactions, but in the customer's predisposition to act favorably towards him and his product, which, as we shall see later, also follows from a pairing of stimuli. The free lunch at a political rally has a similar effect. So has the stick of gum which the pediatrician gives his young patient. It has been shown experimentally that people come to like modern music if they listen to it while eating. When the Jewish child first learns to read, he kisses a page upon which a drop of honey has been placed. The important thing is not that he will later salivate at the sight of a book, but that he will exhibit a predisposition in favor of books. The reinforcements which establish predispositions of this sort are not all gastric. As advertisers well know, the responses and attitude evoked by pretty girls, babies, and pleasant scenes may be transferred to trade names, products, pictures of products, and so on. We are sometimes interested in generating one emotional response in order to counteract or balance another. The dentist, for example, faces a practical problem in that he must administer painful stimuli. These stand in such relation to the stimuli supplied by the waiting room, the dental chair, the instrument, and the sound of the drill that eventually the latter evoke a variety of emotional reactions. Some of these we characterize roughly as anxiety. A funny picture book in the waiting room may elicit responses which are incompatible with anxiety and which to some extent cancel it. This momentary effect exemplifies the use of stimuli which have already been conditioned. The 
educational effect of such a book in creating a less unfavorable attitude towards the dentist exemplifies the use of conditioning in the control of behavior. The flowers and music in funeral homes have an immediate effect in counteracting the reactions evoked by a dead body, and through the process of conditioning, they create a more favorable predisposition in the future towards burial practices. Eliminating a conditioned response is also a practical problem. For example, we may want to reduce the fear reaction, which have come to be evoked by people, animals, air raids, or military combat. Following the procedure in the conditioned reflex experiment, we present a conditioned stimulus while emitting the reinforcing stimulus responsible for its effect. A major step in the treatment of stuttering, for example, is to extinguish reactions of anxiety or embarrassed embarrassment generated by thoughtless people who have laughed at the stutterer or grown impatient with him. A common technique is to encourage him to talk to anyone he encounters. Functional responses of anxiety and embarrassment are generally conditioned in early childhood. If the adult stutterer is no longer laughed at, the response may undergo extinction. The therapy consists simply of encouraging the stutterer to talk so that the conditioned stimuli thus automatically generated may occur without reinforcement. If the conditioned stimulus elicits too strong a response, it may be necessary to present it in graded doses. If a child who has been frightened by a dog is given a small puppy, the similarity between the puppy and the frightening dog is not great enough to elicit a strong conditioned fear response. Any slight response which happens to appear undergoes extinction. As the puppy grows to resemble the dog, extinction proceeds by easy stages. A similar technique is sometimes used in reducing excessive emotional reactions to air raids, combat, and similar traumatic conditions. Extinction is brought about with stimuli which are at first only slightly disturbing, vague noises, faint sirens, or distant sounds of bursting shells. Visual stimuli are presented without their auditory accompaniments in silent moving pictures of actual combat. As extinction occurs, the verisimilitude is increased. Eventually, if the treatment is successful, little or no response is elicited by a full-scale stimulus.